0: Well, excited to be kicking off uh, this two-week series, two-week conversation called How to Stop, What's Stopping You? And uh, it's really based on this idea that all of us, if we think about it, if we pay attention, if we look hard enough, we've got things in our lives that occasionally stop us, that occasionally uh, sideline us, they, they, they get us stuck in life. Uh, we have seasons that we go through where we're stuck. We have specific areas of our life where we find ourselves stopped again and again. And, and uh, uh, maybe it's something to do with relationships. Maybe it's someone you're dating and maybe it's the seventh or eighth person you've dated in the last couple of years. Something keeps stopping that relationship or uh, maybe it's a financial thing and you've got desires, you've got goals and you're pursuing them, but something's stopping you from that. Or um, maybe it's something in your family life or your married life or if you're a follower of Jesus here today, maybe it's something in faith. It's like, yeah, no, I keep, I keep going to church. I keep learning the things. I, th- I feel like I know the things, but I just, I just can't seem to do it. It's because something is stopping you. And in this series, we, we want to we stop these things before they stop us. So, so whatever those things might be, whatever area it might be, whatever season of life might be, getting you stuck or sidelining you, we're going to pay attention to those things over the next couple weeks. We're going to just get curious about our lives and hopefully go on a journey of discovery so that we can stop these things before they stop us. Because whatever it is and whatever form it comes in in our lives, whatever stopping us will ultimately cost us. The things that are slowing us down, stalling us in life, they will cost us something in the end. It could be something small or it could be something really, really big. And ultimately, it may be something that we care about or someone that we care about. So that's what we're talking about this week and next week. Today, we're going to talk about a specific thing that all people deal with on some level. And I say all people because we're actually designed this way. Uh, this, is, this is in our nature. Did you know that our brains, our brains are built to tell stories? Did you know this? If our brains get two or three pieces of information and there are gaps between those pieces of information, our brain, without us even knowing, it will automatically fill in those gaps with a narrative to make sense of those pieces of information that are coming in. This happens all the time. Uh, last week it happened, I was standing out front here talking to some folks After the service and I went to take my mic off and the cord from my mic was swinging through the air and the lights made like this shadow down on the ground. And somebody we were sitting there talking to thought a bug was crawling around on the ground. They, in in their mind, you know, they had in in the peripheral, periphery, uh, their peripheral vision, they saw something moving around on the ground and their mind filled in the story and said, oh no, that's a bug crawling on the floor. Your brains just did this a few seconds ago. When we showed you some of those different optical illusions, you saw this one. How many of y'all saw a candlestick when this came up? A few folks. How many of y'all saw faces? Most folks. And this is what was happening, right? When, when the, the image came up, immediately your brain's gotta make sense of it. And so it's gonna tell you the story. So it either tells you candlestick or it tells you two people facing one another. And the funny thing is, Once you see it one way, it's hard to to switch to the other, isn't it? Like, even when we were showing you in the the video just a few minutes ago, it was like, oh, do you see the candlestick? It's like, I still see two faces. That's all I see up there. That's what happens with a lot of these images. And so... Our brains are constantly doing this every day, thousands of times a day. It's actually a survival technique. If our brains had to actually process every piece of information that were coming in, it uh, wouldn't hold up. It wouldn't be able to, to handle it. And so this is a way for us to, to literally survive, for our brains to survive. They take a couple pieces of information, they write a story about it, and they move on to the next thing. Again, happens thousands of times without us even knowing it. And it's mostly good. It's mostly a positive thing. But there is a sinister side to this as well. It gets problematic when we have something in our lives that's detrimental to us or it's detrimental to others around us. And we begin to tell ourselves a false narrative around it. And as we begin to tell that false narrative around it, rather than dealing with the problem, dealing with the thing that's potentially stopping us, we prolong it. We perpetuate the problem. And and we draw it out into our future. We have a word for this. And and this is what we're gonna tackle week one of how to stop what's stopping you. We We have a word for when we are telling ourselves a narrative that's not true. And the word is this right here denial. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's a refusal to admit the truth. But other ways to think about it is it's a resistance to the real story. It's choosing not to see what's right in front of you and me. That's denial. And for our purposes today, I'm I'm not talking about total denial. Obviously, some people can be in total denial where literally there is a block and they, they, it's a blind spot, they do not see it, do not, they are not aware of it. You have no idea what's stopping you. You know, that is, that is possible, that does happen. There's these moments where, you know, where someone literally like just has no idea. And so if you go over the next few minutes and you can't think of an area in your life that potentially you might struggle with a little bit of denial, just ask the people around you in life, you can ask your family members, those close to you. They probably have an idea. But again, for most of us in the room, I would say almost all of us, we have some idea where we have a tendency to let a little bit of denial slip in to our lives. And it's, to us, it's not major. It's not sinister. It's not, some, it's not some big, dark secret. And because of that reason, we have, we have the ability to kind of just slap a silver lining on this thing that is potentially stopping us. And we tell ourselves and others a story that's more positive than reality. We end up slipping into, sliding into denial. Tell me if any of these sound familiar. These are some of the things we say to ourselves. It's not that big of a deal. Ah, no, it's not that big of a deal. It's, you know, just it's just, you know, it's not that big of a deal. I can afford it or I can afford the payments or I'll figure out a way to afford it later. Right now, I just have to have it. I need this. I need it. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. I'm the only one that knows. So we're good here. We're good here. Nobody knows. Or maybe no one's getting hurt. We look at the situation, we do our own self-assessment of it. And we feel like, hey, like nobody's, nobody's really getting hurt by this. And so it must be okay. It's good. You see how we tell ourselves that, that positive story over something that, that may be detrimental to us or others? Do any of these sound familiar to you? Well, here's the good news. I got more of them. Here they come. Okay. We're going to keep working on this. I'm healthy enough. Yeah, I mean, the doctor is getting on to me, or maybe a spouse or family member or day, Yeah, you should really pay attention to this area. And it's like, yeah, I know I'm not very healthy in this one area, but I'm healthy enough. Like, overall, just look at the grand, grand scheme of things. You know, I'm good. I'm good. I'm healthy enough. It's just how I am. It's just how I am. It's my dad's fault. I got genetics from his side of the family. And, you know, everybody in his side of the family does this, or it's my mom's, you know, mom's side of the family. You know, it's just, it's just how I am. It's just how I was created. This one right here, I mean well. And we use our intention to somehow excuse this potentially detrimental flaw, behavior, character trait. No, I'm, I'm, I am meant well. I mean well. I mean, yeah, I'm gossiping throughout the neighborhood, but I mean well. I just, I want to try to get the information out there. You know, that's, that's what's really going on here. I deserve this. I work really, really hard. I work hard for this family. I work hard for my kids. I work hard for, you know, I just, I deserve this. You want some more of them? Okay, here we go. Here's one more, one more, one more page of them. It's not a problem. Again, not that big of a deal. Everyone's doing it. We use the fact that it's like a common cultural experience to somehow just go, no, I'm gonna, I'm good. I'm just gonna keep this going, you know? Uh, I, I just have a short fuse. I don't have an anger problem. I just have a short fuse. Yeah, I know that I lose it like every day, at least at some point, you know? But it's not that I have an anger problem. I just have a short fuse. And then lastly, I can work through this. I can work through this. I can manage this. I can figure this all out. Any of those sound familiar? When we do this, we're in denial. Even if it's just a little bit, we're resisting the truth. We're taking something that is a problem in our life. It's it's detrimental to us. It's It's a flaw. It's hurting us or those around us. And we end up taking this thing and we paint it in a positive light so as to disguise it from ourselves. We camouflage it from ourselves. And all of a sudden it's like, no, I don't, I don't see a problem here. Nope, yeah everything, looks, yeah, everything looks great. The example that came to mind for me in this um, is the magic eye books that came out. Do you remember this? Like the early 1990s, I was in grade school then. So these were like all the rage. But do you remember the magic eye pictures? It's where, you know, there'd be all these colors and shadows and you have to, kind of have to like stare at it to see the image we got one right here. Um, This is one of the the magic eye pictures. And again, as you can see, the colors and the shadows and everything are kind of separated out. But if you stare at it long enough and you relax your eyes and and, and put your focus behind the picture, in front of the picture, gradually it'll come into focus. And this one right here, if you look close enough, you can see the winning lottery numbers for this week. No, this this is this really is a this is a magic eye picture and there is an elephant. There's an ele, there's an image of an elephant. You you probably can't see it from where you're you're sitting, but I can stand right here and I can see the elephant right here. There's an elephant in the room. Okay? Okay? So this, this is, all the artists have done here is they've taken the, the picture, they've taken the image that they want to have in there and then they just move the pigment and they move the shading and they just separate it out a little bit. So that if you're staring at it with your naked eye, all you, all you see is, oh, well, there's it's just colors and shades and kind of looks pretty, kind of looks like a piece of artwork or texture or something along those lines. But yet the image is in there. And when we're in denial, when we use those phrases that we talked about just a second ago, all we're doing is we're taking this problem in our life and we're just separating out the pigment just a little bit. We're just moving the shading over a little bit. And then all of a sudden, when we step back and look at it, it looks pretty. It looks kind of like a piece of artwork. There's some texture to it, and, but I don't see anything. There's nothing there. Yet all the while, there's an elephant in the room. But we have camouflaged it to ourselves. We have, we have painted a silver lining around it so it just looks, looks good to us, no, no issue here. And here's what's so awful about that. When we do this, we take whatever problem is wrapped up in that habit, that character flaw, that, that, that thing in our life that is stopping us. We take whatever problems come from that and we package it up and we write our name on it and we ship it to our future self. Amazon prime style, except in this case, it may not be two days. It may be six months. It may be two years. But unfortunately, when we choose to live in denial, even just a little bit, we have to open that package at some point in the future. And what is gradually stopping us now will ultimately stop us later. So how do we stop denial before it stops us? Today, I want to look at a a passage of scripture from the New Testament, The New Testament author named John, he um, is responsible for five of our books in the New Testament. He was a disciple of Jesus, walked alongside Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, saw Jesus die, um, saw the empty tomb, and then he became a leader in the early church. And John was writing late, late, late in his life. He was one of the longest living disciples. Many of them were killed for their faith John potentially lived into his 90s. So at this point, many of the other eyewitnesses to Jesus and his life had died off. And at this point, you know, rumors and critics were coming about saying, hey, it's not all it's cracked up to be He's not who he says he was. And so John was very passionate to make sure people knew. No, we saw him. We experienced him firsthand. And so today we're going to look at, at one of his letters that we know in, in the New Testament is 1 John. And in 1 John chapter one, we're going to read the, the whole chapter. But in this chapter, he gives us the solution to denial, the antidote to denial, the way to keep, from, keep denial from stopping us. And at first, as, as I start reading these, these verses, you, you may think, well, what does this have to do with denial? But... Just stick with me for just a minute, and I'll explain it. This is, this is what John says. First John chapter one. He says, "That which was from the beginning." And he's talking about Jesus here. In John's gospel account, he starts with, "In the beginning was the Word." and the word was God, and the word was with God." He was with God in the beginning, talking about Jesus. So this is one of the words, one of the phrases he uses to describe Jesus. He was from the beginning. God of very God. He was God's son. He's always, always been. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He gets into this, um, trying to describe the tangible nature of his experience of Jesus. The fact that he saw him physically, he heard him. He continues, he says, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Again, this is real life. And people are doubting, was was Jesus real? Was he who he says he was? He's like, listen, I want you to know beyond the shadow of a doubt, Jesus was real. And he was who he said he was. He was from the very beginning, but he put on a body. He showed up on the scene. He says, this we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. Verse two, the life appeared. That's the Christmas story right there. He showed up. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. Again, this first person interaction, this first person testimony of, no, I was with him. I spent years with him. I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you, we experienced this firsthand. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, talking about Jesus, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Verse three, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Again, this first person experience. We saw it, we heard it. We proclaim this to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. This word fellowship it's an interesting one. We, we don't use the word fellowship a lot today outside of church. And um, just real quick poll, did anybody here, if you grew up in church, did you have a fellowship hall? Yeah, you remember the fellowship hall, right? Or they say, hey, we're gonna get together for some fellowship today after the service. And um, the interesting thing is that's, that's not really what fellowship means. In the original language, the word is koinonia. It's a beautiful word. It's a powerful, powerful word. Koinonia means communion. Connection, agreement. It it means connection over a shared experience. So if you've ever um, gone through something or experienced something just beautiful, amazing, transcendent, if you've ever had a great experience with another person, there's koinonia there. If you're standing there watching the sunrise over the ocean, you're standing on the beach, and you're just moved by this sunrise. It's just beautiful. Again, there's something transcendent about it. And there's a stranger 10 feet from you. You're like, yeah, isn't this am- This is amazing, isn't it? amazing. Like you don't even know this person, but yet you're having koinonia in that moment because both of you are this amazing thing. I'm like, hey, how you doing? My name's Adam. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm a pastor. Wait, come back. Don't, 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 you're, don't walk away. Don't hide your beer. It's nine o'clock in the morning, people. I don't do that, by the way. So. <laughs> oh, But there is this, there's this shared experience. You experience something incredible together. Or the opposite is true as well. If you go something, through something really challenging with another person, there's connection there. There's shared experience. There's koinonia. I think about, for me, the, the, the guys that I played football with and I can, I can go 20 years without seeing some of those guys. And then we'll run into each other at the store or whatever. And immediately, it's like big old bear hug and how you doing and how's life and catch me up. And there's just a connection there because we had to do two a days in August every single year. It was miserable, all right? We experienced misery together. We went through that together. We bled and we cried and we sweat together. And there was koinonia. It was connection. So when, when our church is growing up, again minded too, that they had the fellowship hall. That wasn't really the fellowship. That wasn't the Koinonia hall. That was just a place where we gathered. That was the gathering hall. What John's talking about here is something deeper, something better. He says that we proclaim this to you so that you also may have fellowship with us so that we may be connected on this front of, yeah, I was an eyewitness to Jesus. I experienced his glory. I experienced how amazing he was. I want you to experience it as well. And just so you know, our fellowship, our connection, our koinonia is not just between us. It's also with the father and with Jesus, his son. We get to connect with him and have koinonia with the God that created us. Verse four, he says, we write this to make our joy complete. John's joy wasn't lacking. But he knew that when other people experienced what he experienced firsthand, when they began to experience Jesus the way he experienced, it made his joy even greater. So what does this have to do with denial? John's setting all of this up. He's setting all of this up because he's about to transition he's about to give us some instruction. And it's like he starts pointing to the life that we have in Jesus before that instruction because he's saying, look, this is what's at stake. If you don't get this next part right, you will miss out on the life and the fellowship and the joy that Jesus came to offer you. This next part If you don't get it right, it will stop you from experiencing the life that Jesus has for you. So he makes this transition and he says, this is the message that we heard from him and we declare to you. He's he's bubbling down. I mean, again, he he wrote an entire gospel on Jesus' life, chapters and chapters and chapters of Jesus teaching. And in this moment right here, John's just boiling it all down into three words. God is light. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. What, what, what is light? Light never lies. Light reflects what is there. We gotta imagine too, this is in a culture where there is no artificial light. They knew what real darkness was. They experienced it every single night. And so they knew the power of light coming into a room, showing what's actually there. It's honest, it's an honest reflection of what is there. It illuminates, it reveals. And you can't have darkness and light at the same time. John says, if we claim, verse six, if we claim to have fellowship with him, God, who's light, and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. That, it sounds harsh, but what he's saying is he's just stating an is, he's just stating a reality. When you're walking around in the dark, you can't say that you're walking in the light because you act totally differently, don't you? I mean, think about it. When you get up in the middle of the night, you get out of your bed and if, if you can't see, if, you're, if your house is really dark, it's like you don't walk confidently. You don't stroll into the bathroom, you know, or, or into the kitchen or whatever. It's like, no, you're like gradually like, wait a second, I don't wanna, I don't wanna run into this door frame. I need to miss this you know, this piece of furniture. Cause if my toe hits this piece of furniture, something's going to come out of my mouth that I don't, you know, it's not, a, it's not a good word. That's the way we walk in the dark. That's what John's saying is, hey, look, if you're living your life and you're claiming, no, I've got connection with him. I've got fellowship with him. But yet as others look at us, they just see us kind of stumbling around. And it's like, no, obviously that person does not see what's undermining our life, does not see what's taking them out of the game. Verse seven, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. There's our word again. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So he's gonna say what he just said again, but in a way that I think we can can understand it a little bit more. Check this out in verse eight. He says, if we claim to be without sin, And sin is just, it just comes from the Greek word that means hamartia. It means to miss the mark, okay? So right now in this moment, when you hear sin, don't think like deepest, darkest sin, like worst thing ever. It's just anywhere where your life is is not missing the mark. If we claim to be without sin, I used to read this verse over and over again, and I would kind of just skip over this section because I felt like, well, this isn't me because I don't, I don't claim to be perfect. I don't claim to be without sin. I thought, I thought that's what John meant, that he meant if you go through life thinking that you are sinless. And I was like, no, that's, that's not me. I'd, I'd move right along. But then it dawned on me, well, nobody really does that. And if someone does, we typically think something's, something's a little off with them, right? Like they're probably mentally just not all there. If they literally claim to have a sinless life, like I've never made a mistake. I've never messed up. I've never missed the mark. Every one of us, every one of us, if we're honest, would say, no, there's, there's moments where I've missed the mark. Sure, I'm, I mean, I mess up all the time. And so it can't be that John is talking to people who think they are sinless without sin. What John is referring to when he says, if we claim to be without sin is actually something that all of us do. The moment we begin to say things like this. It's not a problem. That's claiming to be without sin with whatever that thing that actually is a problem in your life, you're claiming that it's not. Everyone's doing it. I just have a short fuse. I can work through this. I can manage it. That's what John's referring to when he says if we claim to be without sin. And when we do this, we all do it, even if even if it's accidentally, even if it's not intentional. John says that we deceive ourselves. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. We are in denial. We're lying to ourselves. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And it's not that there's no truth in us. It just means that the truth in this specific area where we're telling ourselves that story, there's not truth in that area. We're walking in darkness. We're walking in a false belief. And then John gives us the antidote to denial. He gives us the opposite of claiming to be without sin. This right here, what John is about to say is how to stop denial from stopping us. Verse nine, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, confess simply means to acknowledge to call it out, to name it. You think about the English word, you can just break that down, con meaning with and fess meaning fess up. You gotta fess up with someone. And the with someone is really important. Um, We don't confess by ourselves. Yes, there is a a version of, of confessing our sins to God as we talk to him, we admit to him, we confess to him, but that's not what John's talking about here. Again, it goes back to that fellowship, that koinonia. He's talking about confessing to others. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What's John talking about here? He's talking about the way God is present in community that is honest with each other. He's faithful and just. He'll show up. He'll do his part. When you confess in community that is following Jesus like you are, you'll be reminded that your sins are already forgiven. This is not a, this is not a, uh, something you've got to do, a prerequisite to, to having God forgive your sin. Like, oh, well, you got to confess first, and if not, then you're not going to be forgiven. No, when we confess to others, we're reminded that we're already forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. That's the power in confession. There's power in voicing it. And then once we've looped in that other person, we begin to take steps. We begin to get support. We begin to be held accountable You begin to face what's actually there. And we won't be able to walk around in the dark and sneak this thing into our future. That's what John means when he says, hey, we'll be purified from all unrighteousness. Those things aren't gonna be able to stay in your life when you begin to voice them to someone else. So what's that thing for you today? What's stopping you? What's the elephant in your room? What's that thing that you're denying? What's the area of life where you just keep telling yourself that story? And and again, as you tell the story, you're just moving the pigment back. You're moving the shadow back. And it allows you to keep moving on in life. It allows you to think, oh, I can, you know, it just gives me a little bit of peace. I don't have to worry about this thing. I don't have to face this thing in front of me. It's stopping you. It's stopping you from something. And maybe everyone else can see it in your life. Or maybe no one can see it in your life. You're the only one that knows about it. Either way, whatever it is, If you want to stop what's stopping you, you got to tell someone. You got to tell someone. Who? I don't know who that is in your life. Maybe it's a close friend, a trusted friend. Maybe it's a spouse. And you may think to yourself, there's no way I'm telling my spouse that. Like I just, that's going to be too painful. Well, here's what I would say about that is that the more painful a confession, typically the more productive it is. It's the reason why there's, there's not a lot of good that's done by like driving down the road and rolling down your window and like waving a stranger down. Hey, let me tell you something real quick. Hey, do you have a second? You know, that doesn't do us any good, right? We don't, we even, there's nothing riding on that. We don't care what that person thinks and we're never gonna see them again. That's not confession got to be somebody in your world, a friend, a spouse. It could be someone in your community group or your community group as a whole. This, This is why we tell people to get in a group. And to me, I think it's one of the biggest things that a group offers is a chance to get together with some people and be real about life. My men's group meets every Thursday morning and As I've observed through the months that we've been together, it seems like, yeah, I mean, do we learn stuff? Sure. Do we do studies? We read things together. We get to pray together. That's incredible. You know, we've developed some great friendships. That's great too. All those things are great. and Group will offer all those things, but more than anything, I think it gives us an opportunity for us to show up to a table and be real about where our lives are missing the mark. And again, it doesn't have to be some big, deep, dark secret, like, oh, I, you know, I'm I robbed a bank last week. You know, you don't, it's, it doesn't have to be on that level. It can just simply be, hey, I, I'm just dealing with a lot of anxiety these days. I don't know where it's coming from. Or, you know, everything's great in my life. My job's great, kids, family, you know, but it's like, but I just have this lack of joy. I don't know why, but I'm just kind of melancholy about life. I'm, I'm missing the mark. They're not even, not even really doing anything wrong. But I'm missing the mark. Hamartia, there's sin there. And when you voice it, there's a power in voicing it. So find someone and pick someone and be honest with them, be specific with them. Don't be vague. Don't be like, hey, uh, I got this thing, you know, this thing in my life. And I, uh, you know what? I've got an unspoken. Will you just pray for my unspoken, you know, prayer request? No, tell them, be honest, be specific. And here's what happens. Here's what happens. You'll leave that meeting. You'll leave the community group meeting. You'll leave the interaction you have with your friend. You'll leave the interaction you have with your spouse. And at some point, you're gonna drift back into denial. You're gonna start to, again, paint that picture and stretch the pigment and tell yourself, ah, it's not that big of a deal. But you've removed the power of that thing because you've already given the truth to someone else. Once you tell someone else that's in your world, you've set a constant reminder of, oh yeah, this isn't something that I can just slap a silver lining on and move on into the future. I gotta see this for what it is. And then you'll begin to take steps to do something about it. You'll be purified, as John said from that thing that's holding you back. Tell someone, tell someone, and you will stop denial before it stops you. And we'll pick it up there next week in part two of how to stop what's stopping you. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. God, I just pray that you would... um, continue to bring to mind for us the things in our lives, the areas in our lives where we have a tendency to not tell ourselves the truth, but to tell ourselves a narrative that is just a little more positive than reality. And as you make that clear to us, God, would you give us strength to do something about it? Would you give us strength to face it and to be honest about it, to bring it into the light, to not walk around in the darkness? God, would you give us strength to tell someone. And then God, would you play your part in our lives, um, helping us walk out of that thing and take steps out of that thing, away from that thing to heal that thing so that it no longer stops us. Help us to do that today. We need you in this. And we pray it all in Jesus' name, amen.